the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost. I am Mohammed Nala of MoKnows.com. Mo is one of the most respected macro analysts to come out of South Africa. He is now in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets expertise. Together, we will unpack the biggest trends and issues and scratch beneath the surface to bring you our insights and share our love and passion for markets and investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to Magic Markets. Welcome to episode 35 of Magic Markets. And just before we kick off, I want to wish my co-host, Mohamed Nala, Eid Mubarak. And uh, Mo, it's been a pleasure to do this thing with you for, for a good few months now. You're wearing a very spiffy shirt there. There's no blue hoodies for you today. So uh, obviously I want to just kick off with wishing you that. And thanks for making time to still do the show this week. No, thanks, Ghost. You know, this show is uh, it's a labor of love. Uh, I absolutely enjoy it. So thanks for the Eid wishes. And, uh, you know, Eid Mubarak as well to, uh, to our listeners who are out there, they're celebrating. You know, I think uh, and it's been a really tough year. So if you have the time and you are blessed with your loved ones around you, uh, you know, just uh, enjoy that. Be grateful for that. Yep, absolutely. So something that a lot of people were not grateful for this week was the roller coaster ride of the markets in literally a matter of a couple of days. So Mo, there's loads for us to talk about. For a macro guy like you, I think uh, there's a lot going on out there. Um, and we'll talk to some of the, the big stuff in global markets. I mean, Bitcoin, actually some big technical moves there. There's some stuff to talk about on gold. There's stuff to talk about on banks, on maybe a little bit on inflation, all the stuff that we generally cover, but a lot of it's sort of come to a head in the markets at around the same time. Before we tap into that, though, there's something I want to talk about, which is pretty hot off the press. I mean, we had Tracy Davies from Just Share on the show a few episodes ago talking about ESG and especially where companies just they either get it wrong or they deliberately get it wrong more often than not. And I saw something today that once again just struck me as another fine example of the term ESG being thrown around without you know any real appreciation for what it should mean. So Satrix proudly launched this inclusion and diversity ETF. Now the whole thesis behind that is, is that diverse teams perform better. That's all good and well. I'm not quite sure how they measure that, to be honest, because how do you take two companies that otherwise had identical prospects you know, one team is not diverse, one team is diverse. And so you have a perfect control and then say, oh, the diverse team did much better. Of course, the last thing I'm denying is that diverse teams are a good thing because they are. And especially in a country like South Africa, where we have so many different viewpoints, cultures, it's this great melting pot. That's what makes it special. It's just weird when people make claims like that. I always wonder how they could actually, you know, prove that. Nevertheless, it gets worse from there. So the starting point to figure out the companies that go into this index uh, is ESG criteria, so that's all good and well. Then they use another 25 measures and they go and rank these companies. Now, you would imagine that if you're using ESG criteria, there are certain names that you just won't find there. But there it is, second biggest holding is Sassel. Third biggest holding is British American Tobacco, and I'm not sure about you, 
but I'm not sure that tobacco and enormous carbon emissions are going to, you know, please someone like Tracy, for example, on an ESG score. <laughs> Woolworths is in there. They don't exactly have a great track record with small businesses on a good day. ABSA is in there and they can barely hang on to a chief executive for any length of time. So I honestly have no idea how they've actually arrived at putting this fund together. But, you know, I would forgive it if it actually had companies that have performed well. But the best part is if you take the, I think it's the five biggest companies in the fund, all of them are down over the past five years, every single one. So, you know, I talked about how you can lose money in the Robinhood IPO, and I think that's still true. And I'm not saying you definitely lose money in this thing because some of these share prices are a bit depressed and they're on the up and everything else. But I mean, how to just create a marketing gimmick out of thin air, ESG for what? <laughs> it's that's all that. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Anyway. Ghost, I, I, think you're, I think you're on fire there. I, I think, I think I've, got to, I've got to calm you down a little bit. I mean, the fact of the matter is that first and foremost, one, I guess one of the key criteria is that limiting it to the South African market uh, is part and parcel of that problem. You know, there, there aren't that many stocks on the JSE of size and significance, and that number of stocks shrinks uh, every time we speak. So I think that's part of the problem. I then concur with your view in terms of a lot of this tends to be a marketing gimmick. Now, that's a problem for me because if you're looking or talking about important macro issues, cultural issues like diversity, like inclusion, which is massive here in Canada as well, and, and should be increasingly massive globally. I, I, I personally believe in a lot of these values. I personally believe that they are good for the world. Uh, and again, there is some empirical research to prove that, yes, diversity is generally good for companies' performances, cultural cohesion, etc. Uh, similarly with ESG. But at the end of the day, I think it's a rather crude and blunt instrument uh, to take it and just kind of slap a passive investment vehicle on top of it. Uh, you know, I believe that especially when it comes to issues as nuanced as ESG, if we're discussing issues around inclusion and diversity, that for me requires a much more careful lens. Uh, we can't just go at it with a pickaxe. Uh, it's more like a surgical scalpel. You've got to go and really scratch and do your homework. So again, to listeners that, that weren't uh, aware, we did do a show with Tracy Davies a little while ago, uh, which we can refer you to, Ghost. I, I don't know if you recall the name. I think it was uh, called ESG Enforcer. And, you know, go go and give that show a listen. I think that starts to, again, scratch beneath the surface on, on, on some of the important issues at hand. But yeah, I think it does it a disservice to try and just slap a marketing label on a lot of these things for mass consumption. Hey, you know what? Maybe it's well intended by Satrix, but at the end of the day, the end result might not achieve the societal aims that ESG and diversity issues are actually aimed at achieving. Yeah, no, you do make a great point that the universe of stocks is just not that big. That is a pervasive problem across the JSE. And this fund is uh, SA only. I still think they could definitely have left out some of the ridiculous names that shouldn't be in there. But yeah, there's a bigger problem here, which is stock universe. And that's the great thing with magic markets is we have a global lens on these things. So now that I've finished ranting about uh, the use of ESG to go and sell index funds to people who haven't gone and opened a fact sheet, uh, maybe we should talk about what's going on on, on your end of the pond. Uh, where do you want to start? I suppose with a bit of the US sell-off over the past day and bounce back or where do you want to go? Yeah, I, I kind of, I always have to laugh because, you know, if you're someone who goes and, and watches, you know, all of your, your mainstream media stuff, if you're watching CNBC and Bloomberg and, and Reuters and you're getting all of this news coming through, you know, you, you'd be forgiven for believing that, geez, there's been a massive sell-off in markets. When in, when in actual fact, 
Yes, the S&P 500 is off its all-time highs, uh, but roughly around 4%. Um, I don't detract from the important issues at hand here, which we've spoken about at length, which is to say that in some sectors, valuations do appear very stretched, and we can go into some of that. Yes, there are a number of risk flags which have actually popped up. Uh, there's also this, this really niggly issue that we've discussed on several shows uh, around inflation concerns. Uh, globally, but specifically in the U.S., and whether inflation is, and I've been abused on this on, on Twitter, whether it's transitory or not, <laughs> okay, and on that basis, I think, you know, it's the, the narrative that pops up on traditional media will try and draw on all of these issues and assign the reason, you know, you see the market move, and then they just try and assign it towards whatever the dominant reason is at that point in time, whether it's, take your pick, Tick box, inflation concerns. Uh, take your pick, tick box, maybe consumer sentiment data was, uh, or confidence data was a little bit l lower than anticipated in the US. But the fact of the matter is that these are all background issues that are pervasive, that have been there for a long time, and sometimes markets run hot and some of that steam needs to blow off. And so potentially, that's what we've been seeing over the course of the last couple of days. In fact, as we're speaking today, markets are up again. So it's why it's so important for cooler heads, calmer heads to actually, you know, persevere when you're constructing your portfolio, do so over the longer term. I mean, the show's not really about trading. We talk about some trading ideas, sure, absolutely. But for predominantly for investors who take a much longer term lens, it's absolutely vital to just sift out, filter out some of the noise. Uh, I got stuck in that rut a couple of years ago as well. And I'd watch, if you're watching your portfolio several times a day, you're probably doing it wrong unless you're a day trader. Uh, I've moved myself purposely towards a position where if I check my portfolio once a day, that's a lot. I wanna be able to take high conviction views that have some longevity and then give me the luxury of maybe checking the portfolio a couple of times a week, uh, maybe even less frequently than that. If I'm doing that, then I'm actually investing and I'm maybe doing this with a much longer term discipline in mind. I think that's a really important point. I mean, another discipline that I find interesting is swing trading, which is kind of short to medium term views. So not trying to get in and out on the same day, but over a period of weeks or perhaps a few months. I think that's quite a cool, that, that for me intellectually is very interesting because it kind of marries the technical and fundamental points. You need to understand something about technicals. I don't think you need to be an expert necessarily. And I think some technical stuff, you know, some of it's quite esoteric, some of it you can see play out often. And the fundamental stuff, earnings releases, if you can understand that during that period, there's going to be an earnings announcement and you've got a decent idea of what that might look like, you know what the pressure points are for the company, you can make a lot of money swing trading. Of course, you can lose a lot of money too. But something I noticed that was a bit different this week, Mose, is I think some of the previous pullbacks were around inflation concerns and what we typically saw was yields went up at the same time as stocks went down. And you know, the, the corporate finance guy in me goes, okay, well, that's because, you know, valuations of equity today must come down because the discount rate goes up. And that's the one argument as to why that happens. But this week, the yields came down, stocks came down, everything came down, basically, except for a few. <laughs> At one point on the JSE, I think two stocks in the top 40 were in the green. And I think 10% of the overall market's stocks were in the green, and that was about it earlier this week. So why did yields come down at the same time as stocks? What caused that to happen? Uh, and again, you know, at, at risk of trying to assign some sort of market narrative towards a, a market move, I'm, I'm, I'm first of all glad that you, you highlighted that, 
Because if you look at the U.S. tenure at, at the time we're having this conversation, it's around 1.30. Now, let's, let's again break that down for listeners. If you don't watch the U.S. tenure, if you don't watch the bond markets very closely, you know, that was pushing up to like 170s or a while ago when the inflation concerns, as we were discussing, were, were front of the agenda. That's, in fact, one of the reasons why I'm saying there's, there's a disconnect. You know, some I've seen narratives out there in the media saying it's inflation concerns. But if it's inflation concerns, then the bond market's in a disconnect. Uh, in my view, I see this as, as potentially some sort of uh, risk reallocation within portfolios. Remember, if yields fall, it means bond prices are actually going up. So potentially, and I don't have the, the data, I haven't looked at it and scratched really underneath that to see if this is validated, but I would assume that some of the money that's flown out of equities has potentially gone into that U.S. Treasuries market. Now, the reason why I see this somewhat of a, of, a, of a kind of a risk rotation is that if you also have a look at the performance of other asset classes that you would look at in an asset allocation framework like gold, for example, you know, gold's also similarly ticked up over the course of the last several trading sessions. So maybe that's just some guy saying, mm, you know, valuations are quite stretched. We'll take some of that off, you know, uh, reassign that risk towards bonds, towards gold, toward, toward other asset classes, uh, and then, you know, take stock and decide how you deploy the capital thereon. That's, that's all I can assume right now. I mean, no one really has a firm handle on that. But I, I think there's a fair assumption behind, you know, why there's that, that subtle disconnect in, in the shorter term. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I think that's a, it's a really good explanation, as good as any. As you say, no one quite knows, but we can at least make reasonably educated guesses at these things. And a couple of important technical levels that people have been watching, one of them certainly is Bitcoin, uh, which has now dropped below that $30,000 mark, which I think we did discuss on a, on a previous show at some point. Traders love crypto because it's as volatile as the day is long and it trades basically the entire week. So traders just love the thing. And a lot of people have made a ton of money from uh, from trading crypto, obviously. Uh, the people who bought and hold Bitcoin are now very sad. Uh, I think you and I both at one point punted at this thing and we sold out uh, in the four high 40s, I think, or low 50s even, more or less. So we did okay out of that. What are your thoughts on this thing going below 30 and, and, and also just the sentiment towards Bitcoin? Because I've got some thoughts on that as well. I think I think we've discussed crypto. It's important. Again, it's the volatility of the asset class is is astronomical, and um, you know, f first and foremost, I want to almost backtrack from that and say, I do believe there's a role for for crypto in terms of where financial markets and potentially central bank backed cryptocurrencies go in the future. Uh, I think it, it it really poses some fascinating, and we we can we can do a whole new show on this. Some fascinating aspects for where and how monetary policy tools might evolve in the longer term. But let's park that for now. I think if we look at the shorter term movements, uh, when we spoke about that, and we in fact both had held it in kind of our, our more trading slash swing trading oriented portfolios, uh, you know, we, we'd held them and it pushed up to a high just after we had sold out of around 65 odd thousand dollars a Bitcoin. Uh, I remember getting out specifically around 55 odd, 57 odd thousand. Uh, and, and, and then subsequent to that, you know, felt like a bit of an idiot when it pushed even higher. But then it started to, to, to devolve. It started to break down. Uh, at, uh, and again, you mentioned technical levels and how some of them are esoteric. I remember at the time a lot of technical analysts going out there saying there's a, there's a head and shoulders on this and if it breaks the level i remember at that time around 45 or thousand give or take that we're going to see 30,000 
So where we are now is effectively the top head and shoulders playing out, or the kind of more shorter term head and shoulders playing out. If we zoom out, we take a longer term lens on this. And when I say longer term, again, with Bitcoin, anything that goes back a couple of months is very long term, right? If you, if you look at the chart from around January to where we are now, there's another kind of a head and shoulders pattern that has developed. The right shoulders morphed and it looks like this very deformed shoulder. But if 30,000 breaks here, you know, then arguably you could easily see this thing head down into the mid to lower 20,000s. If that breaks, holy smoke, we're going a lot lower. So, you know, I I think it's done a lot of legwork. If it fails to break, you know, really um, convincingly above 35,000 to the upside, which is kind of where your resistance comes through, uh, I think you're probably going to find some downside materialized there. But what what are your views on Bitcoin? I mean, you wanted to share something there. I'm, I'm curious, have you had a change of heart or how are you seeing things? Yeah, so I think the sentiment changed when people started to realize, well, it's a few things. So one, the environmental impact has really come to the fore. I think that is something that no one was really talking about last year. I don't think people really appreciated the scale of Bitcoin mining. And I had some interesting debates on Twitter today. Um, Obviously, you know, funds like ARK are talking their own book when they talk about how it's actually good for renewables and it encourages investment in renewables. And, you know, we can debate that all day. But the point is, for me, I think just fundamentally and in line with my own ethics, I've kind of decided that Bitcoin doesn't actually serve a purpose. I think crypto does. I think the concept of crypto blockchain can serve a purpose, but Bitcoin, purely Bitcoin, doesn't really do that. It kind of created the path for all these other coins to spin off and to be used in DeFi, to be used in transactions. But despite not actually having a purpose, it certainly consumes an astronomical amount of energy. And, you know, the debate today I had on Twitter was around, yeah, well, so do electric cars. Well, absolutely. I'm not a big fan of electric cars myself, but at least they have utility. People still need to get around. You're going to burn energy. You can't not burn energy in your daily life, but burn it where you need to, as opposed to on something completely unnecessary. So that's kind of where my head's got into a little bit. And I tested sentiment on Twitter today. And again, the stuff is very anecdotal and it's obviously only South Africans really who are replying. But I kind of asked people, are they buying the dip? And it was literally, no, 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 no. I did not get one yes. Now, if you go back six months, probably not even six months, Twitter was awash with laser eyes and 500,000 tweets a day from, you know, Pomp and uh, the, the Winklefoss twins and everyone else. And now it's really just that Max Kieser guy running around sounding like he's been on a Miami-fueled uh, a binge all weekend, you know, swearing at Elon Musk and then Elon himself who doesn't know which coin he's pumping half the time. And these guys are just living their own dreams here. And a lot of retail investors have kind of just been hurt along the way. I don't know. I feel like a lot of the money's left Bitcoin, I'll be honest. I think a lot of it's flowed into the other coins or it's flowed into nice new cars with uh, crypto-inspired number plates. To be honest, people took their profits. And I personally think that it can go materially lower because I think a lot of the buyers have, have left the building, actually. Yeah, I think you raised some critical points. I mean, the, the other aspect, which I think has really evolved in the last several months, has been the the regulatory aspect. So tax authorities around the world, uh, including South Africa, have started to look at Bitcoin and crypto a lot more closely. I mean, this was really always the risk. Uh, I mean, the simple fact that the largest, purportedly the largest crypto heist uh, are two South African brothers uh, certainly doesn't help (laughs) a heck of a lot. But, um, you know, at at the end of the day, I think those are all structural and fundamental changes. It's why I I tend to agree when I say I I believe in crypto and the role crypto has to play in terms of how finance evolves over the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years, whatever it is. Um, 
that may or may not be Bitcoin. So I think that's a very astute observation on on your behalf. In terms of market sentiment, you know, a a little while ago, and this applies to almost all markets, not just Bitcoin, there are these market cycles. You know, there's the the euphoria that, that you get right at the top. And then there's the fall off that comes and then people go into denial. And after denial, there's utmost despair. And that's when no one's involved. So I think, you know, if you're speaking anecdotally to South Africans and they're saying, I'm not buying the dip, maybe that's the despair that's starting to settle in. If, if you look at it globally, you know, you've got the Michael Saylors of the world who also kind of, you know, big supporter of, of Bitcoin. And only once we get a real proper flush out, I, I still see people saying, you know, hodling forever, right? And, you know, and until that turns into utmost despair, I don't think it's bottomed yet. So I agree with you, it could go lower. Uh, and maybe those levels lower 20s, maybe even into the teens, who knows, right? But when you see that despair really settle in, that's, I guess, the time to say, oh, well, is the cycle done? Can you relook at it in terms of a much longer term view um, if, if you want to go long? Or are there better alternatives? Is Bitcoin done and dusted? And do we all start buying, you know, the, uh, the Chinese yuan central bank digital currency or the digital rand, which is being worked on by the South African Reserve Bank? Uh, I think there's something that's coming on a global basis in terms of central bank digital currencies. I think that's where the future goes. Uh, and that need not be good news for Bitcoin. Yeah, I agree. I think everything has its day. Sometimes there's a first mover disadvantage on certain things because technology then improves drastically and it leaves that thing behind. And the problem with something like Bitcoin is it can't change because it's a you know, that's the whole point, right? So... Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. There are diehards who will hold it forever, um, and and you know, and good good luck to them. Truthfully, and, you know, Bitcoin is also less of an environmental disaster if it just doesn't go completely mad. I think that's especially what happened last year. Is it just the whole usage of Bitcoin, the trading, the amount of mining activity, you know, went a little bit bonkers. Um, but again, you know, we'll we'll see we'll see what happens with that. The one great truth at the moment though is that the easy money, which was you know, from the the big dip last year until kind of February, I guess this year, that was pretty easy to make money in the markets. You had to you had to get it quite badly wrong not to make something. Those days, I think, are also clearly a little bit over. You know, it's now a stock pickers market, and that's great because I guess for guys like us, that's what we that's what we live for. <laughs> it's you know, it's the intellectual curiosity of doing it. Uh, we do it in we approach it in very different ways. You've got more of a macro lens. I have more of a a bottom up lens. But at the end of the day, that's what makes magic markets cool is because we take the two lenses, we look at this stuff through and and combine it and and try and give objective analysis accordingly. And we've got some exciting stuff in the pipeline for our listeners, which we'll look to announce in coming weeks. But Mo, on the whole, would you agree it's it's more difficult now? It's going to take more uh, more effort from people to make bucks in the market. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, the same way you have long cycles. So we know value has been on the back foot, growth's really been where the action's been for the last 10 years. Uh, similarly, I guess over the last year, you know, it, it, it like you say, maybe it's been the easy money trade and that's now reached maturity. I think that, you know, we're, we're pretty much sitting at a, a mid-cycle expansion phase. I mean, there's still a lot of um, optimism, certainly in the rest of the world, there's a lot of pent-up demand that's going to come through. There's obviously, depending on what happens with the Delta variant and COVID, uh, but vaccinations are rolling out in, in a lot of geographies. Uh, and as those open up, as you know, spending patterns tend to normalize, 
uh, that's not necessarily bad for business. So I, I certainly think the easy money is done. It's why I would say we're mid-cycle of, of, of an expansion cycle. Uh, but that said, that's when you, you move towards being a much more of a, of a stock picker's market. And that's where it's, it's difficult. It's intellectual curiosity, but it's also not as easy as buying an, an ETF and then just kind of closing your eyes. So you're going to have to do a lot more homework. I mean, speaking about that, in a stock picker's market, it's, it's also... It's easy to get it wrong because, you know, something we, we always discuss, what's your idea? What are you putting in the portfolio? That's great. But there's also a discipline of what do you sell? You know, what is your selling discipline? And and I, I must be quite honest. I mean, I haven't yet cracked that one uh, as, as well as I would like it. You know, uh, I'm reasonably you know, confident in my stock picking ability. I'm reasonably confident at, at getting my entry levels right on things. I'm not as efficient at getting my exit levels. And I'll give you, an, I'll give you a story because everyone on the show who's listened for a long time will know Moderna really early on in the cycle. You know, I was very excited about Moderna. Uh, it was kind of the, the outside of the consensus vaccine trade. You know, it was a company, new technology, relatively unknown. And, you know, I, I liked it. So I was lucky enough to get into Moderna around $100. And this thing ran up. I think we discussed it on the show, but certainly definitely on, on a sidebar, we did discuss it. And when it got to like $160, $170, I, I trimmed my exposure, kept half of it, and it came off. And it came off all the way back down to around the 130s, 140s again, and I got back in again. And the reason I'm, I'm, I'm raising this is that we all make mistakes, and this is regarding selling discipline. From there on, it ratcheted back up to around 180 And instead of doing what I normally do, which is to say, You've made decent money on this. So technically, you've got this optionality. You wrote a great piece on, on Ghostmail, which leveraged off our last podcast around optionality, right? And I normally leave that optionality on the table. Instead, on this one, I cut the entire position. Take a guess where Moderna is right now as we're speaking. It's over $300. So sometimes, you know, yes, you, there's no point crying about the trades that, that ran away. Uh, but certainly when your investment thesis is sound, it's based on proper mega trends, you know, sometimes it does pay to leave some of that risk on the table because at the end of the day, that you're not going to make money sitting in cash. You make money by taking calculated and educated risks. Uh, and maybe sometimes my risk management is a little bit too tight. But yeah, that's my story. I don't know if you have anything similar to share there. Go yeah, on. just talking about not making money in cash. I mean, what I find easier is to avoid the bad stuff. So, you know, like Coinbase, I mean, I took one look at that IPO and said, hell no. I even wrote an article about it at the time. And I said, if you invest in this thing, I wish you luck. And that's been proven 100% correct. But the thing is, it's great to avoid things that don't do well and that's useful. But at the same time, it's a bit like relationships. You know, you can avoid all the people you don't want to get into a relationship with. But at some point, you have to take a chance on love and, uh, and you have to actually put some money in. And, and that's what's getting a little bit trickier at the moment, but it's okay because again, I look at my I look at my whole portfolio. I mean, I smashed my access bond into the market last year, so a little bit of deleveraging for me personally is not the worst thing right now. But I am nibbling at stuff as and when it makes sense, and, and trimming a few positions here and there. So, yeah, we'll see we'll see how it plays out. Obviously, lots of uncertainty, lots of risk, but that's what makes the markets interesting and fun at the same time. And I think that's that's pretty much what we've got time for. Uh, today and not least of all because uh, you and your nice shirt need to go off and do family things but uh, thanks for making time not least of all during Eid and uh, as ever I look forward to having you back next week thanks Ghost it's always a pleasure co-hosting this with you and again to our listeners out there remember give us a great rating uh, we, we love the show and we love if you love the show so if you do enjoy it feel free to engage with us on social media uh, our twitter handles are at finance ghost and at Mohammed nala so go out there look us up 
and uh, subscribe to our various platforms. Thank you, Mo. We'll chat next week. Thank you. Remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and monos.com for more detailed insights. This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.